artificial intelligence, AI, and the future of humanity. As an investor, you're not really pleased with this performance. Alan Turing and also how his efforts in AI helped England win the war. Zoom into his eyes, his eyeballs look creepy. What are your short-term predictions on the good, bad, ugly, everything? So maybe in 500 years, like when we decide on, you know, who's gonna be able to best manage the human population without any bias and with the best outcome. It's gonna be so automated where like you don't even need to like get up and like data you possess as a human being that's the most valuable thing you can output to the world. Doing so is gonna help you set up a, a life and a career that maybe you're What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the Skies podcast and channel. I'm your host, Tony Massad. In this week's episode, we have a very special topic and a very special guest. We're going to talk about artificial intelligence, AI, and the future of humanity. I have my special guest here, one of my best friends, classmates back in the day at Wayne, Jamal Warida. He's a mechanical engineer, data scientist, and founder of ArmNet. Before we get into the video, if you're watching this on YouTube, please like, subscribe, click the bell notification. If you're listening to this on the podcast, please leave a review and share this. And also, we are now on Rumble. If you want to send us a message and you want our observation and analysis on a topic, situation, whatever, feel free to send us an email. Thanks Jamal. for having me, Tony. Like, I'm really excited to sit down and talk with you. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of interesting topics we're going to go through and I'm, I'm glad to hear you're on Rumble. Um, I think it's a growing platform and a lot of people are going to be interested in these sorts of topics on Rumble. Yeah, I just I just figured I'd go on Rumble because I saw the whole thing with like Andrew Tate and the cancel culture. And I'm just like, you know, it's a new platform and I want to just kind of extend my reach as much as possible. So, Jamal, like I'm I'm really happy you're here, man. Uh, I wanted I wanted you to be the A.I like person of interest I'd bring on to talk about this stuff because you know me I'm a mechanical engineer I use AI like a little bit at work and I just wanted to like kind of talk about it I have like opinions about it I've played around with some like low-level versions of AI we'll talk about so before we proceed I want to give the audience a definition of artificial intelligence just to establish some home base. So this is pulled off of Wikipedia. So artificial intelligence AI is intelligence demonstrated by machines as opposed to the natural intelligence displayed by animals and humans. AI research has been defined as the field of study of intelligent agents, which refers to any system that perceives its environment and taking actions to maximize its chance of achieving its goals. That's an interesting definition. So to me, I wanted to just look at other sources instead of Wikipedia. So this is from IBM.com. Thought it was reputable. IBM, they're like the pioneers of AI. You know, they've uh, been one of the first companies in the U.S. that you know were launching data centers and applying AI into like the um, automotive industries and all sorts of industries that relied heavily on computing data. Um, but unfortunately, like for IBM, they've kind of you know like 
missed the gap within the last couple of years. You know, you don't hear about IBM as the company they once were. Um, a lot of companies have kind of overshadowed or at least like been able to deliver to the market artificial intelligence that's actually useful. Yeah. And that's why IBM is really not doing as hot as it should be in such an environment. But what's their definition? How do they... Jamal, do you, do you follow IBM? Because I don't. I just know that they created the original computers and that was it. Um, I follow them like briefly on the stock market and I'm, you know, I, keep, I stay updated with what like news conferences that they release to the public. Um, it's really not that exciting of a company anymore. I think um, there's companies out there like Tesla, uh, Microsoft, uh, Palantir that are really on Palantir. the, you know, they're yeah. on the bleeding edge of technology in terms of AI, machine learning, and just overall like data manipulation and using data to really drive um, the new industrial revolution that we're currently, you know, uh, seeing that's going on. So that's why like IBM, they've been having a lot of like internal discussions and CEO changes across all these years. And they're still not at the level that they want to be as a company. You know, if we look at their stock chart too, we can see that What's their stock at, cause I, I look at a company, if, a, if I think a company is like good, I always check their stocks as like, you know, how are they performing? How, how is their stock? Yeah. Let me bring it up. So while Jamal brings up the stock, I'm going to go ahead and say this second definition from IBM.com, but so John, so this is um, from IBM's website. So it's from, this is a definition from John McCarthy's uh, definition from his 2004 paper. So it is the science and engineering of making intelligent machines, especially intelligent computer programs. It is related to similar, to the similar task of using computers to understand human intelligence. But AI does not have to confine itself to methods that are biologically observable. Very interesting with biologically observable. Yeah. So like if we look at IBM, um, at least for the, for the past five years, the stock is down 18%. And even, okay. you know, with the 2020, like all the tech companies were hitting new highs. IBM was flat for five years and you can probably show you know, the audience, like the stock chart. And it's just like, as an investor, you're not really pleased with this performance, especially with, you know, looking at certain companies that more than doubled or tripled over the last two years because um, mm. they were in the tech space. I think a lot of investors look at IBM as a value play. Yeah. So they see like um, there's a lot of value that needs to be unlocked to really push the stock up but it needs the right management and the right products um, to be able to deliver that change. Um, so it's all about execution. Yeah. Who, who's, who's captaining the ship, doing a good job or a bad job. Yeah. And then, and then the product too, right? It has to be like, even if we look at AWS, um, Amazon Web Services, they've been able to take a lot of market share from IBM because the product that they've been able to release to the customer is much more intuitive and mm. you know friendly for people to implement on a company level and for like individuals like you and me it doesn't take an expert to become an AWS um not 
you know, as, uh, to use AWS, web, web yeah, they have a lot of training material for a, for anyone to look at, and it's really intuitive to the to the to the user, not like IBM's products are. Yeah, you have to be like a coding god to, yeah. I feel like, understand. That's cool. So you follow like Amazon Web Services and stuff. Yeah, Amazon Web Services. We have Snowflake, Palantir, um, to name a few. Each one of them operates on a different level. So for example, Snowflake is a data warehousing software. So mm. um, instead of having like actual physical uh, data storage at certain companies like they used to, most companies nowadays just for flexibility and for scale, they choose to upload their data on a cloud and Snowflake helps achieve that. That Snowflake and AWS. Um, and then we also have Google Cloud so a lot of these, you know, big time tech players, what they've been trying to do is migrate from traditional um, on-site tools like data servers into the cloud because the cloud gives you scalability, scalability yeah. it's cheaper, and um, there's a lot more resources that you can do as an individual and as a company. Um, so overall, like we see that maybe a company like IBM, I would like to define them like maybe like the like the Fords of the automotive world. And then you have all these Teslas, like they're the OGs. They're the ones that are yeah. coming out, you know, to overshadow some of the legacy players in that space. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool info. Yeah. I always think of, yeah, Ford's the OG and then you have like the small and nimble players. So that's, that's really good info, Jamal. Uh, it's amazing that you know that stuff. So, um, just to continue on like with the history so now we covered two definitions of artificial intelligence one from wikipedia one from ibm uh, jamal is just so anyone knows jamal is like a stock trader and crypto trader so uh, i leave a link to his content in the show notes if you want to reach out to him and watch his uh, see his content so so now i'm gonna i'm gonna share with you the history of ai because i was interested in this so it actually started 70 years ago. So this guy named Alan Turing, mathematician, dude was like way, way, way ahead of his time. He was a genius. Bro, like, in 1950, like I was like, damn. Um, can you imagine like what the tech was like back then? Probably he was working with, you know, things that had no compute power. No computing power. Like just analog stuff. I mean, I don't even know, 70 years ago, but he's known as like, um, and everyone on the show would have to uh, fact check me on this, as the father of computer science. So in 1950, he wrote a paper and he proposed the question, can machines think? And then he came out with this thing called the Turing test. And the Turing test, it's originally called the intuition Im imitation game. And the evaluator human being would judge the natural language of the machine that was basically programmed to uh, imitate human-like responses. The test got a lot of criticism, but whatever. So Alan Turing was the first one to like think about AI way ahead of his time because the computing power was not even there yet. And then John McCarthy, I believe John McCarthy worked with Turing. John McCarthy passed away in 2011, rest his soul. He's one of the founding fathers of, of AI. He coined the term artificial intelligence. He was, uh, John McCarthy was a Stanford professor in computer science. 
Uh, he developed the coding language Lisp. Do you know about Lisp? Have you no, heard not of it? Really. Nope. Okay, well, anyway, this dude was a G. Came up with Lisp. It's the favorite language for AI. He coined the term in a proposal written for the Dartmouth Conference in 1956. So artificial intelligence has been around for like more than 70 years. Yeah. And for anyone who's interested in learning more about, you know, the work that they've done, there's a really nice movie out. I think it's on Netflix called The Imitation Game, which talks about um, Alan Turing and also how his efforts in AI helped England win the war because they were using artificial intelligence to decode some of the Nazi messages that were going out. Um, So he pretty much helped, you know, the allies understand the decrypted, the encrypted uh, messages that the Nazis would send and they would decrypt them using AI and that helped them win the war. Um, So it's a very interesting movie and you should check it out on Netflix. The Imitation Game. Yeah. I'll leave a link to it in the show notes. That's really cool. Did, what what did you think of the movie? Oh, it was a great movie. You know, some of the actors like they really did a good job, um, just walking you through like the history and how people lived through war. It wasn't easy, right? Because you have all these people; their lives changed like um, super quick. They were under a lot of pressure because they knew if they didn't really crack this code, then that would have maybe led to the Allies losing the war. Um, so the work that they've done even though it wasn't really like military based and they weren't like really shooting guns and stuff but the intellectual work that they've done helped them achieve the success and that's why we we live the lives we do like in today's world um because of their efforts wild so literally using ai to decrypt language from the enemy that helped us defeat the enemy and and our society is the way it is today War shapes society. I mean, it's proven fact. So that's amazing. And I feel like, you know, nowadays, intelligence is the number one weapon that anyone can possess, right? Whether it's intellectual intelligence, you know, what data is. Data is just a collection of of data points. And then you need to overall come up with an intelligent um, analysis or, or... a system that decodes all these data points to come up with a data-driven decision. And that's what they did. And they were the first ones who achieved something of that sort. Um, Language, or yeah. sorry, or yeah. Cause each, each like, uh, each military has their own like encrypted whatever. And language. it change, changes on, and the way that, if I remember right, the Germans would always change the code every single day. So even though that, you know, the, the evolution and the constant change, it was all based on one certain decoder or key mm. encryptor. And that's what the model that Alan Turing and the team were, were, was, was able to build was what this key was so that they can, you know, decode all the information that was coming to them from, you know, Nazi uh, messaging. To do that just by human just like say just by humans only no ai like how that i can't even imagine how you would do that it might take like it might be impossible or it might just take insane effort like thousands of people or i don't know so for them it was a much more of a manual process like Mm -hmm. that's why when you watch the movie you can see that they didn't really have 
like you know computers back then it was more of a machine that would uh run simulations mm. um to kind of at least decrease the amount of time that maybe a human would have to go through through these mathematical equations and that's what the computer that we defined back then did uh the computer back then was nothing like we have you know in our smartphones where yeah. probably you know th this current smartphone can solve that equation in like 0.1 milliseconds or something but back then it took much longer to to do something maybe as simple as it was back then but something that's relatively not as complex in today in today's uh technology technology um the movie is going to help explain a lot of that stuff so i think maybe you should check it out too tony yeah i definitely i'll, I'll watch it with the wife the imitation game that's really cool yeah war is always interesting and it's it's really like a, a thing it's it's all about intelligence i've seen there's a really good podcast that was i think it was like lex friedman and andrew bustamante he was like a cia operative and he was just saying you know just talking about all sorts of things that you know the cia does um to just gain intelligence and yeah espionage and all that all that stuff data is power nowadays like data information is the new currency yeah it's it's real yeah data you're a data scientist you would know yeah so uh just to let everyone know um the way tony and i met was through like our uh mechanical engineering degree we uh we met in was it in be 1300 right yeah was... basic basic engineering 1300 yeah. The bro, that class was painful. We had three different professors cycled, like there was no consistency in the curriculum. It was just like, yeah, that was a brutal class. It was, and I mean, we had a lot of classes maybe like that, but I yeah. think as engineers, it kind of like helps us grow into engineers because like the more problems we solve, um, the you know it kind of like gave us training on what to expect because even in you know the real world right at at your job or at work throwing I mean, into the fire yeah things aren't stable things change day to day you have a new project you have a new boss so all these things like even though maybe back then we didn't really appreciate much i mean nowadays we see them as you know realistic to what you know engineers go through uh on a on a day-to-day -day basis um, and then after I did my mechanical engineering uh, degree, I uh, decided I wanted to work, at, at, you know, in a field that is, that helps me get into any sector that I wanted to and is not just geared towards engineering in a sense. And that's where I did my research and I saw that uh, machine learning and data science is something that's coming up and there's going to be a lot of demand for data scientists to analyze data and come up with machine learning algorithms um, and also the usability of this degree whether you want you want it to work in finance in healthcare and engineering all fields nowadays every single company in the world produces data yeah. and no one knows what to do with this data so they have to hire people like us to analyze the data come up with you know a business case a business model for them and understand how that data can be used, whether it's predictive or prescriptive or descriptive data. What what is what is like? What are those definitions like? 
pres uh, sure. predictive, prescriptive? So the first one, the basic one is descriptive data analytics. So you typically, all you would do is the data that you have at hand, you would just graph out plots and graphs to come up yeah. with the data story. So you're just looking at the data from the past tense. Mm -hmm. You're not doing any futurist, any, any like forecasting or anything. Forecasting. You're just using whatever data you have to see what the trends are inside that data set. Mm. And then for predictive, um, what you're doing is you're building a model that can kind of give you uh, statistical significance when you train the model to help you predict for a certain situation what the outcome of that situation is going to be. Um, usually like for predictive learning uh, you use like machine learning algorithms whether it's like decision trees or um, random forest analysis or even like right. logistic or linear regression to come up with uh, a predictive answer and then for the uh, uh, prescriptive analytics it's usually like in forecasting and that's the one that's the least accurate compared yeah. to the first two uh, so, for example, like, you know, let's say you're trying to predict what the stock price is. Yeah. I mean, even if you had the best data model in the world, like, no one can really achieve that because the data is somewhat not, like, what happens in the stock market is not always up to what the data shows you, right? And at the same time, like, with prescriptive analytics, it's, it's still not to the level of... Uh, statistical significance where you can fully trust the model it's more like mm. this is nice you know i like what the model model is showing me it's good to know but i'm not going to come up with business decisions and you know to do a certain investment based on what the model is showing me it's just nice to have that that's i i can see that one are so relating ai to this you might have heard of the crypto numer ai Numer AI is a crypto blockchain, whatever project, and it's basically based off of like building models to building data sets and models to like analyze and predict the stock market and performance. Just from me being like a simulation engineer, I can just tell you this is when things start going non-linear, the computational effort just becomes like exponential and just from my simple mind looking at the stock market the stock market to me it looks like a super super non-linear like thing and it's like predicting it predicting linear things is is like is but like super non-linear and with the stock market all the variables and, you know, with the market, like, there's a lot of data points that a model would follow. And the reason why sometimes, like, even right now, like, I think there is a statistic that says 70% of trading that happens on the stock market are, you know, is done by uh, algorithms. Algorithms trading the market. Like bots? Like yeah. AIs? Or, yeah. yeah. So a lot of it is set on certain um how does that work can you can you tell us how that works yeah so it's just like computer science and most of people that work in the finance uh, realm for uh, algorithm algorithmic trading they usually have a data science background or mathematics or computer science 
and they're usually called quants. Um, quantitative, uh, uh, it's called quantitative analytics, but usually they're just called quants. And what they do is they build algorithms and machine learning models based on uh, past data, and that data can be anything that the firm sees as statistically significant. So for example, we can either see that sentiment analysis. So they would build like a machine learning algorithm that goes through all the news, uh, news articles from Twitter or from like the web on a specific stock and they can see like what sentiment is out on a certain stock. So for example, you know, for the past two years, wild. everyone would always hear like all the news about Tesla, right? When yeah. Tesla was going up. They had, you know, Elon Musk and all the things that he would say that was tracked in real time by these algorithms and they would trade the stock based on whatever news came out. So literally like an AI would basically follow the headlines and then invest accordingly. Yeah, exactly. Based on certain keywords that the machine learning algorithm would value. So, for example, like if Elon Musk came out and and that happened with Dogecoin when Elon Musk Doge. would, you know, pump Doge, we can see that. A lot of that training was done was anytime Elon Musk would even mention Doge um, in his tweets, the coin would pump like 20-30%. That's insane. Yeah. And for a human to keep track of that, that's a bit too much. So that's where these algorithms would come in and they would just like automatically detect like, hey, a tweet came out and it has Doge in the tweet. So I'm going to go dump money into the Dogecoin cryptocurrency. So that's a very basic way of looking at it. There's a lot more complex and there's funds that are fully dedicated to algorithmic trading. So they don't do any human investing. They're purely off of mathematical and computer science statistics and they just dump money into this algorithm and the algorithm has uh, mm -hmm. to make money for the firm. And usually that's typically... Uh, that's insane. Yeah. That's the first time I hear about that. Um, yeah. Fully AI, ETF, or whatever, trade fund, mutual fund, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd really be curious to look at, like, the profit. Like, how is it, you know, how much is it outperforming the market? I'd be curious just to see the, the data on that, ironically. So it's a very simple way of doing so, because when I was doing some, like, research on it, you can actually track, like, the performance of your model, because you can backtest it over the last like five or 10 years of a certain stock. So let's say you built a model and you wanted to see how well my model performs. So you would feed that model and you would just feed it, you know, maybe the past five or 10 years of SPY. And you would run the model based on that data and then you can see like over the five or 10 years how your model performed and then compare it to the actual ETF. If you were able to beat the ETF, that means your model successful. If you underperformed it, then you got to go back and fix something in your model because the S&P is beating your performance. Yeah, that's, yeah, I can see that. Just from like the simulation world, garbage in, garbage, garbage out. out. <laughs> like, I feel like so many people like don't know like engineering and math and science and like all that STEM stuff and models and creating those things like it, it, your model is only as good as like whatever you're feeding in. So if you're feeding in trash, it's not gonna just gonna like you know fix it and make it you know beautiful art. It's gonna like you know your model is as good as the the data and the inputs and the assumptions that you're and all the parameters and all that 
stuff you're putting into it. I mean, that also, like, that's kind of the basis of life in a sense, right? Like, hard work and dedication and, you know, the good things you do in life, they end up giving you results, right? You can't come in and, let's say you want to build a house and you're using, like, you know... Let me start building the roof first. Yeah, or even utilizing, like, you know, things that aren't supposed to be uh, used in building a house and then you expect the house, once it's done, to stand and, you know, be maintained as such. I mean... Um, data science is a bit more complex in that sense, but I think the biggest issue we have nowadays is figuring out what is defined as good data and bad data. Because um, a lot of companies have data, but they don't know if that data is useful or if it's not useful. Yeah, questionable data. That's that's really interesting. I want to come back to that. Uh, so Jamal, let's talk about applications in the in the real world i guess we're in the real world for ai so i've got a list here of just some basic examples and i want to hear some examples that you know you can think of so for for like very simple ai examples i can think of we're like okay my google assistant right i don't have apple products so i have like the google the um the google lens which is pretty cool you can hold your phone up to some object and it'll just like, you know, find it online, whatever it is, and you can like purchase it. Um, and then the facial recognition, which is pretty impressive, I think, um, you know, especially for smartphones. And then I was thinking like, uh, like chess, trying to beat like an AI in chess. Um, I, th I think this recently happened, but there was a, like the master chess player, they got like, he, he, he lost to the AI. And then same thing with Go. Uh, Go is like a Chinese, uh, like, it's like board a game. Yeah, board game. And uh, the AlphaGo uh, AI smoked like one of the best players. And then that AI was smoked by another, another, AI. another AI. And it's just like, okay. Um, so, like, when, you know, when we, like, when you're younger and we'd play like, uh, like counter-strike and you would like play the computer like the that's like kind of like an ai it's like you know it's a machine it's a very simple one but yeah that term you know let's, let's play the computer yeah so um so if you're quite yeah i mean if you're trying to see what some of the applications we have in today's world um they're numerous right even on your smartphone um, what about like do you use any for like being a data scientist mechanical engineer like are there any things like what do you use AI for you kind of mentioned earlier with like stocks and, and stuff but if you're if you're okay with sharing what you personally use it for professional for or professional yeah so a lot of it is task automation right so at least like from some of those things I used to do in my career and things, um, it was mainly the process of taking a manual operation and a manual task and figuring out how we can build uh, a machine learning workflow that can automate a lot of the manual tasks. So for example, uh, one of the business cases was uh, there was a person that his sole focus was to read articles on competitors 
and figure out all the useful data that they can extract from this article to build like an Excel sheet and go through all these like data inputs. So for example, who the competitor is, what location or what country they're releasing this article from, if there's any like deal that's been announced in the article and what the uh, you know value is associated to that deal. So that was usually like a six hour, five hour process that needs to be done on a daily basis. So it was super time consuming. Yeah. So what we did was, um, it was me and a bunch of other data scientists, we figured out that there are certain applications and one of them is called uh, RapidMiner. So what RapidMiner does is you build a database of these articles and it comes in from a web scraper. So this uh, machine learning uh, input would take in all these sites that we would keep track of and it would update on a daily basis to extract all the articles and feed it into the model. And the model from RapidMiner comes pre-trained on certain um, data columns, for example, like country name, uh, any, uh, any engineering keywords. So for example, like, you know, machining, uh, refining, all these like engineering names that are typically associated to, to us. Um, and then at the end of it, the output would come out very close to what the, you know, person would usually do on a day. And that model would take 10 minutes to run. <laughs> so you can see like there's a massive, massive amount of, you know, time saved using time a machine. Cost. cost, time, and just effort, you know, because at the end of the day, a lot of companies, um, they want to be as lean as possible and also be yeah. a, a, as efficient as they can be. And the way to do so is to sometimes like unfortunately eliminate as much human input as possible and replacing it with uh, AI or a machine learning algorithm that can automate these tasks. Yeah, because the AI doesn't need a uh, retirement benefits, nope. doesn't need health insurance or a pee break or any break or vacation time and can and can work 24 seven too. Yeah, the AI just, well, it'll smoke you out, work you and, you know, do a better job. I, I feel like it's the AI on the job market. It's really going to like, it's going to hit the job market. Unfortunately, I can see it already happening now, especially with a lot of the, like the basic jobs. I feel like the more highly advanced jobs, say like, you know, doctor, engineer, pharmacist. Uh, pharmacist, lawyer, like those people are going to still be around, but I can see it like trimming the fat. And, you know, to this topic, I think a big announcement was done by Tesla last night. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. So last night was Tesla AI day two and they unveiled their um, Optimus bot. So their Optimus bot is a product that they're going to release to the marketplace. And essentially what it's going to be is what you just discussed, like building a robot that can replace most of these um, manual labor jobs, like let's say someone that would work at a factory plant. Um, and at the same time, just for personal home use. So for example, they see that the bot would help you, you know, carry your groceries from the car to the house, maybe clean the house, um, water the plants of, of the house. I would want a robot to clean the house. Yeah, yeah. And it can do a lot of the manual. The Roomba, that's... 
It is a robot. Yeah, I mean, it's a robot, yeah. Amazon bought iRobot just for the whole, you know... I don't know purpose. if it's an AI, but it is autonomous. So it, it is. It, 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 prob- it, pro- it has probably some AI in it. Oh. Yeah. And what Tesla wants, wants to do is they want to make this robot mass-produced and at the same time affordable. So they are trying to target a starting price over less than $20,000 for the bot, which I think can help um, a lot of people afford it. And at the same time, if you look at what Tesla is going to be doing with this robot in their own factories, I mean, it's enormous, right? Because if most factories typically employ anywhere from 10 to 20,000 people. And if you can replace half of that force by these bots that can work 24-7, um, you don't need to pay them, you know, every single year. It's just one upfront cost, maybe some maintenance, you know, from time to time. Yeah. But that's what's really going to give Tesla the edge over Ford, GM, Toyota, and all these companies. Because there's no way these companies can compete with such, uh, you know, a merge between robots and a company like Tesla all in one. Yeah. And helping them, you know, like pump out all the cars that they're going to be doing over the next couple of years. So uh, hope hopefully the robots and Tesla don't form a union. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that. They get that smart. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If I they know. do form a union then yeah, that's that's uh that's a big problem for Elon Musk. Um, yeah. Well, we'll hopefully he like put a program in there no forming unions. And that's why Tesla as a company can do that cuz even Tesla right now, they don't have any of their factories under a union. Yeah. So even if they wanted to replace these people on the line, I mean, there's really not much that the workers can do compared to companies like Ford and GM. Yeah, they have their unionized uh, yeah, labor. Yeah. yeah, so that's why we can see that some of these legacy auto companies are are kind of like dinosaurs in a sense. They, they're very slow to Big move. Big and slow. And, you know, seeing all these changes changes that are happening in AI and robotics, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be survive or die, right? Like, it's just another step of evolution of manufacturing itself. I know we're talking about really advanced tech. I mean, the dinosaurs were so big and they died. And, you know, they died for, theoretically, a comet. So one thing that somebody told me was, I remember when I was first starting like my first business and you know, I was like, you know, I'm a small company, you know, I don't really have much assets under management, like, you know, I'm small. These other big corporations would just smoke me, these other huge companies. Somebody told me this and it really resonated with me. He said, because you're small, you are nimble you're like a speedboat and you can just you can just zip by the huge giant ship right that's taking forever like a like a, a plane carrier for example you know you you can just you can turn quick you're small and you're nimble the bigger companies are like a big ship where they want to do something they have a lot of resources too but it it takes you know longer time to you know switch over and tesla being smaller and nimble when they first started, they were able just to like rapidly innovate, rapidly accelerate. And now they're like, in my opinion, I see them like just, they're beating the game. They're, they're beating the race. Yeah. And what we see right now is something that, you know, 
happened in the cell phone market you know back in the day when we had all these cell phone manufacturers like blackberry nokia lg i don't even i don't i, I totally forgot about those brands yeah just, i mean they're gone in history the reason they're gone is they didn't evolve with the change right when when Apple announced the first iPhone, which was a touchscreen, all these other manufacturers, they were always stuck on the key keypad and they didn't want to evolve into like having a touch a touchscreen phone. Apple was the one that introduced this, you know, big evolution and look where they're at right now. But if you ask yourself which company was the first to adapt to this change was Samsung. So that's why Samsung as a company was nimble and they saw this unique opportunity to transition into, you know, touchscreen phones. Yeah. BlackBerry, they were opposed to that change. They took way too long to come up with a model that had that technology and they were always stuck on having a keypad. And look where BlackBerry is right now. It's like nothing compared to what iPhone and uh, Samsung yeah. were able to do with their uh, smartphones and I think we're witnessing something like this in the automotive space and it's only going to be a matter of time to see the full effects of it yeah I mean just like just from from life experiences like life is only change and the universe and everything is is only change I mean we live in Michigan you know you 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 stand outside for a year theoretically everything changes the colors the sun the 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 color of the the trees the plants the growth the winter the snow the different season it's all changed and it's just like you need to change with it or you're just gonna like you're gonna be left behind and innovate or die i mean yeah. I, I, that's extreme but that's how life is man that's how life is man i mean I, i'm with you you, you got to keep uh like one thing someone told me i saw this it, it was a quote um and it was like, you can never stop, you should never stop learning because life never stops teaching. And you should never stop changing because life never stops changing as well. You got to kind of, you know, change with it. Yeah. So like, you know, really good examples. I wanted to talk about like AI and engineering. So I won't give any specifics. So like, there's AI, like I can see AI doing uh, a lot of engineering. Specifically, I'm going to get laser focused on like design. So there's already a company, I won't mention by name, that already has the software. But anyway, it's called Generative Design or Optimized Topology. And we use this in the mechanical engineering industry. So let's say you take some part, let's say on an airplane or a car or whatever, you take a part okay and you want to optimize it for what for weight for cost for manufacturing for scalability all of those things right it's very important weight is super important with like uh you know it's important in automotive aerospace space it's weight in general is important you don't want too much weight so let's say like i want to design some sort of like part or bracket i can put it in the software or whatever this tool and set all the parameters, constraints, design, whatever, the whole nine yards, and the AI will optimize and converge on the ideal design that's ultra lightweight, the bare bones material you need to pass your requirements, and 
you know, ease of manufacturing and scalability, weight, all that stuff. And, you know, that's already used now and it's just going to keep progressing. And it's really useful stuff because for you to do that manually would take like months, 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 if not years. And AI is super powerful with that. I think it's a really good useful application. Yeah, and another place that I see like machine learning and AI uh, with with design manufacturing is uh, testing requirements. Like even uh, a lot of tests that you would usually like do on the field that would cost a lot of money for a, for any company to do on 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 you know first manufacturing the product and then testing it testing it out on the field. These tasks can be done using. Uh, predictive modeling to see whether like a certain crash what the outcome of that crash would look like um, based on machine learning and predictions and usually that ends up cutting them a lot of uh, costs and time spent Um, and I think that's some time spent's huge yeah and it helps them you know um, be able because companies want to be agile right they always want to iterate and when they want to iterate they want to iterate in a way that's super quick they don't want to wait a year to do design changes they want to do something every single week and machine learning machine learning in general is going to help you know most engineering companies achieve that um, and i think there's a lot of nice tools out there i think um, siemens is you know on the forefront of that siemens and I, is amazing yeah Jeez, they're they're oh my gosh so there's a lot of interesting tools out there and you know nowadays we can see that the more tools that we have access to the less manual and like real real world testing that we're going to need to do most of this is going to be done through computer simulations and machine learning we already do a lot of computer simulation i mean just from my end being a you know a structural simulation engineer it's like do you know how much cheaper it is to like not actually crash a car versus like crash a car in like a like cine simulation it's like I can run thousands of simulations and and it won't even come to the cost of like, you know, doing it physically. One thing too, and this is what kind of scares me because I don't know, I hope I have a job in the future because I enjoy my job, but it's like, okay, imagine you want to create like the perfect product. For example, let's say you want to create the perfect car, okay? And what does the perfect car entail? From my from my perspective, I'll tell you what I think. The the lightest weight, the uh, meets all like stringent government requirements, emission, mobility, the whole manual book. Okay, cost, low cost, easy to scale, um, and uh, just yeah, just easy to do all of those things great gas mileage whatever mileage in general has great aerodynamics just everything like you can think of on a car just perfect 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 you put let's say you put all your requirements into some tool some ai tool and you say okay here are my requirements you know here's here's the game here are the rules come up with the perfect solution and and then the AI, you just click go, you input all your stuff. The AI just cranks out like a billion iterations or whatever the hell. And you just get like the perfectly designed car, aerodynamics, efficiency, weight, manufacturing, cost, the whole nine yards. Okay. 
and better than any human or team of engineers could ever create in like a thousand years and it creates it in like like five minutes simulation yeah. time so i think that will be possible soon um especially with you know supercomputers and all the technology that we have nowadays the only issue is tony um the main thing that really sets apart like a prototype from actual like a product that we can mass produce is how complex that car is going to be to build in a factory because that's the limiting factor right we can the computer com can come out with you know the best vehicle that we can build based on these requirements but then we also need to look at can we build these in in the factory can humans assemble these vehicles and um if the, if we can also model those requirements into yeah. the equation then it's going to be the ultimate product that we can sell to the market right because then you have all the bases covered from technical regulations to manufacturing yeah. and all the things that we typically want from a vehicle um but prototypes are that's one of the misconceptions prototypes are super easy to build yeah very but then you know companies you know we've seen quite a bit of companies that have come out um on the public stock market like you know uh, like um, rivian rivian i, I mean, saw one of those trucks they're pretty cool yeah even like design. mainly nikola and all these like canoe and all these other ev players they all had these wonderful prototypes and they were designed based on you know certain requirements but then when it came down to producing them you know in a physical plant they can do that and yeah. they're just burning money yeah because to okay you made a night nice, so prototyping isn't easy however it's much easier to make like one prototype versus like okay now now make a million you're just like uh okay that's why we have like a lot of these plants where they just make one specific part you know there's stamping or there's you know this is an axle plant or whatever one thing too is i think we're gonna we're gonna always still need the engineers involved because you you get the final output however i still think there's value you need the human there you need the expert the engineer whoever to just have the judgment and say okay the output of whatever my my ai produced is garbage or it's it's not good so you still need i i always still think you're going to need the human element because let's say you design the perfect car well it's going to have to be reviewed by you know a group of engineers or at least some engineer to be like okay it's a good output we've tested it physically it's good so i think what i said earlier is a lot of the ai is going to it's going to trim the fat i don't think it's going to eliminate 100% because even like you know the things that i do ultimately the final person is is the judge the final judge is is me and i'm like okay good results you know you you developing that intuition i feel is like you still need that checks and balance what do you think yeah i mean absolutely i think most of the things that ai and machine learning is going to replace are uh, you know unfortunately like maybe the tasks that don't require as much um technical knowledge you know uh i heard someone say the like the ai robots will do the the, the 3d's the the dirty disgusting and dull yeah exactly <laughs> yep um 
engineers are always going to be needed because also at the end of the day we need to be able to just like you said right tony like all the someone needs to be accountable at the end of the day you know yeah. with ai you can't really like you can't hold ai accountable because at the end of the day there's a human that's built this ai and with engineering products because at the end of the day like sometimes some of these tools or products they're like in life or death situation right so you need to have a human back some of the things up and engineering in a sense is maybe transitioning from um, different fields of engineering so for example like nowadays with evs we know maybe a lot of the mechanical engineering jobs are somewhat transitioning into more electrical engineering yeah but at the end of the day you always need engineers right it's, it just switches from one field of engineering to another. Um, and that's where the big changes happen, I think. Yeah, like from, and I'm, you know, I'm trying to say this from like an unbiased perspective. I always think that the core engineering is going to always be needed because as long as you have like circuit boards, which I'm guessing you're going to always have circuit boards and wires and whatever. And, and motors and like. Yeah, all that electrical and then as long as you have like something physical that has like a structure, you're going to need a mechanical engineer because, you know, okay, the AI, it's going to need a body. What's the body going to be made of? Mechanical parts and electrical parts and, you know, electromechanical parts. And you're going to need some data scientist to, you know, crunch all the data that it, it's using and build the models and so I, I still, yeah, I, I definitely think there's always going to be a need. And like you said, someone has to be accountable. And for me, like, I, I don't, I trust the AI, but I trust the human judgment more. Because the computer doesn't know if it's arrived at an, at an incorrect answer. Yeah. And one of the biggest examples, because I've really done a lot of research when I was working on ArmNet, was... Like nowadays, Tony, we, you know, we have the technology and at least Tesla has, you know, autopilot that's capable of fully driving the vehicle from point A to point B. Yeah. The reason why, like, you know, um, autopilot is still not like federally legal in a sense, because the government entities, they don't know who to sue if an accident were to happen, right? Because... Mm. the laws and regulations right now there's still not nothing set for an autonomous vehicle crash that who's held liable is it tesla is it the driver of the vehicle is it the is it the are is it the uh, the companies that made the sensors for tesla to install on the vehicle um. so there's all these questions in terms of who's accountable for that accident that are still not answered and that's why like autopilot and all these autonomous driving software are still not fully legalized under um, the U.S. Uh, automotive laws, right? Um, Question for you, a quick comment. This is like one thing I thought of is you're absolutely right. Who is accountable? And let's say you, you so this is why I, I like AI, but AI involves like, like, like accountability, morals, and it's got, you know, some metaphysics. So like, let's say that you're driving, whatever, the Tesla's on autopilot, whatever. And it's like, it's gonna get into, there's, you're in a situation where you're gonna get into a collision. 
and there's like, hypothetically, let's say a, a woman and walking her baby in a stroller. And then there's like a group of like, you know, three older women. Okay. Like, and you, you has to go one place or another. Um, and it has like, that's like the scenario. Like, what does it choose? Which, which is the right one? And how does it making that judgment? Is there even a right answer? Like, and who's accountable? That's a very, I don't know what to answer. I mean, that's a, you know, there's morals. There's a lot involved in that. And that's where I think even Elon Musk preaches about having like a committee of an AI committee that's, uh, that's answering some of these questions, right? So that's at least looking at these questions and trying to solve them from a, from a moral perspective, right? Because a lot, a lot of these questions, there's no easy answer to, to them, right? Where, who, who should the car hit? It's, you it's, don't know. You, you still can't give a decent answer to any of these scenarios, but... And who's right? Like, it, let's say a human was in control. What's the human response? Is the human response right versus the machine response? And it's just like, you know, you're starting to get into some tough questions. I mean, yeah, I don't know. That's why I think, like, AI is still not mature to the level of everyday use. Yeah. And it's still going to take us at least you know, another 10 to 20 years to be, to be ready to implement these um, AI tools in the real, real world where like you can wake up one day and, you know, you order an Uber and the car shows up, there's no passenger inside and it takes you from point A to point B. Uh, the technology is there. It, it's just a matter of answering some of these obscure questions and setting the legal frameworks in place so we can utilize these technologies in uh, in the real world. Yeah. Yeah. And, and ultimately there has to be like, I, I personally would always feel comfortable if there was an AI, but there was also like a person just like standing behind it, ready to intervene in case it just like malfunctions or it just makes a, a crap decision for whatever the hell reason. And that's what ArmNet is. Can you talk, do you mind talking to yeah. us about ArmNet? So part of ArmNet I mean, the reason why I decided to do ArmNet sick name. was it's kind of the backup to AI systems, right? Because we know nowadays there's a lot of tools that help us uh, help humans be able to work remotely, right? Yeah. So, and we have all the data infrastructure now that you can remotely access vehicles and build systems that can help you uh, wirelessly control a vehicle or any type of machinery from a remote location, right? So as an operator, you can be sitting at home with all the necessary tools like the steering wheel, the screen that helps you see what the car is seeing, uh, uh, pedals and brakes, and then you can remotely wire into the vehicle and any action you take in your uh, in your um, simulator gets transitioned into the vehicle so for example if the vehicle is put in a certain situation that the ai failed right who's going to intervene right are you going to intervene maybe the cars of the future are not going to even have steering wheels because some of the designs of some of these futuristic cars um, there's not going to be a steering wheel there's not going to be any pedals it's just going to be like sitting in a couch that's driving at 70 miles an hour so ArmNet would be a solution that would come in and be a backup to the AI systems when the AI system is either having a, 
a functionality error, or maybe it's not, or, or maybe it's set up in a situation that it doesn't know what to do. Um, so ARMnet hopes to achieve something like this, and if anyone has some ideas or wants to be involved, like pre please, you know, feel free to reach out to me. Um, I'm trying to build a team. I right now, Tony, I have a provisional patent on the uh, technology itself, and wow, I see a lot. I see a lot of value, you know, because. Right now, you know, we're facing a supply chain crisis, right? And yeah, that's that's a problem. Yeah, ArmNet was designed to kind of solve some of these supply was, chain constraints. Yeah, what was your motivation behind creating ArmNet? Yeah, so because um, you know, I always keep an eye on the stock market and looking at inflation and some of the things we're dealing with. A lot of the inflation that we were dealing with over the last maybe you know, a year or two were based on supply chain constraints. Um, we don't have enough truck drivers. There's like a statistic that's officially like released by the U.S. Uh, Data Bureau where it says we have a shortage of 80,000 truck drivers in the U.S. And if you look at the data statistics of truck drivers, um, it's an aging population. If you look at like young people like us, no one wants to really be a truck driver, right? No. Do you know any of your friends who are truck drivers? None of my friends are. Cause... I heard it pays well, but the lifestyle for me. Yeah. And that's the reason why we have that aging population. The average age of a truck driver is like 49 years old. So I did some data analysis and I saw that, you know, within 10 years, if we don't find an answer to this problem, um, the supply chain issue is going to be much bigger than that because in 10 years, all these truck drivers that are 50 are going to retire. And those people are like 70% of the truck driving um, population sample. So it's either we wait 10 years and we hope that AI is, is, um, is able to fully, you know, replace all truck drivers or, you know, it's the end of the world for us. So yeah. that's where ArmNet kind of came to me where, you know, let's say in 10 years, AI is still not quite ready. There has to be a plan B and ArmNet is be. that plan B because I can tell you from some of the research that I've done and some of the people I've spoken to, a lot of young people would love to do the job of an operator where, you know, they can sit at home, they can control a truck and do the eight hours it takes to be a truck driver remotely and then at the end of the day switch off their gear and then just go back home. I mean there's they're still at home right they go see their friends they're still in the same city but the yeah. truck is thousands of miles away from them and yeah. that's a much more appealing lifestyle right um I would do that job anyone would do yeah I mean it would it would be nice to like work from home or let's say even like let's say it was just like an office or some sort of place that was yeah. nearby like a location I just go there. I don't need to like, you know, get a hotel room, travel across the country, leave my family for, you know, God knows how long. And I can, I finish work done for me, go to the gym, <laughs> come back home, see the wife, see the dog. And what this also, what this technology also helps you do is you don't need to be a full-time truck driver. You can kind of be like an Uber or DoorDash driver where you can work the hours you know, let's say this weekend you have like five hours to kill and you want to make some extra cash. You just come into this warehouse or even if you have the gear at home, you would just turn on your gear and you can do the job and make money for those five hours that you're free. And eventually that technology, you can kind of scale it into other uh, businesses such as DoorDash, such as DoorDash. Uber, you know, like 
for Uber, let's say there's Uber Freight. Yeah, or even just like, you know, the tax, like the, you know, the Uber that we're, you know, used to, where we don't really need to have someone in the vehicle. It can be an operator controlling the car. And at least the driver, the rider inside the vehicle is somewhat relieved that there's some human aspect to their ride, right? They're not fully in the hands of AI. There's at least some human as a backup to the AI if anything were to happen. Jamal, that's an amazing idea. I really applaud you for creating that. That's really smart. For me, I don't think we should hope. I think we should just like operate and work like we have a fire literally under our ass and just like go because I don't like, yes, it's a big problem and and it's going to hit everybody. Even if you're retired, like go to the grocery store. Like how do you think the grocery store is stockpiled? How do you think the gas station gets gas? doesn't magically appear it's transported on a truck and yeah it's i mean it's it's like the it's like the veins and the lifeline of of society of of, of the whole economy right because if the economy keeps growing which what economies typically do here in the u.s like our economy is always growing right so the more growth we have in our economy that means more things are moving on the road to get from point a to point b for manufacturing and for factory work so the only way you know, the whole system doesn't collapse is if at least the supply chain industry still maintained because some of the, yeah. some of the big, you know, so the biggest thing we've dealt with for the past couple of years is inflation, right? Inflation, yeah. you know, hurts everyone. And we had the whole, uh, we had COVID and COVID. the supply chain lock that we felt the nasty effects of supply chain when COVID went down. That was catastrophic yeah and it affected a lot of businesses like the automotive they couldn't get their hands on chips parts semiconductors yeah. like parts so it's an ongoing struggle and even to this day the the problem is still not finished like no. even the other day uh, ford announced to the world that they're still facing supply chain restrictions and they can't really like pump out the vehicles that they ideally would like to and they got their stock got hit 15 percent that day because you know, investors are still like, they thought that this problem would be solved by now and they're not trying to deal with companies that have supply chain disruptions. Yeah, that's tough. It's it's everybody. I mean, I, I, I don't know one person, you know, in the professional corporate world that hasn't at some point like complained and said like, you know, the supply chain, like it's interfering with projects, we can't get parts, we can't get whatever. So I think ArmNet, I mean, that's a brilliant idea. Yeah, if anyone's looking for uh, a job, my buddy Jamal, uh, we'll leave a link to uh, everything to get in reach with him uh, in the description. So Jamal, I uh, want to wrap up here soon, but really, really good stuff with ArmNet, man. I'm, I'm proud of you. Thanks, good job. Uh, so, so I want to talk about just some more AI stuff. There's this really cool thing. So... Jamal's like J Jamal. I told as I told you, he's my boy. So I'll like find some like random thing on the internet that I think is cool, and I'll just like sporadically just blow up his phone <laughs> two in the morning. Jamal, Jamal, I found this. So one thing I found that was really cool. It's called Dal E, and Dal E is a artificial intelligent artwork generator created by OpenAI, and it creates artwork based on text description so i'm going to show you an example and you'll see them here up on the screen 
And basically the first picture I'm gonna show you is, is this picture here, picture of uh, my, my it's, a, it's a pit bull, it's not my pit bull, but I put in the description, okay, create a photo, create a portrait, a realistic portrait of a pit bull in a space suit in, with a synthwave background, and that's the picture that it created. So that was amazing. The second picture here we can see, uh, I, it was a variant of it. So you can create something and then you can create like other versions. So now we can see like, okay, the ears are up on this one. Really cool stuff. And I started playing with it some more. I asked it to uh, generate a, a picture of an Arabic man standing in a desert with a Lamborghini in the background. So this is the picture That's that it a... created. So it's crazy. One thing I noticed that it screws up is the face. I don't know if you can tell, but the face just looks weird. Yeah. And then there's another picture. So this picture of the Arabic dude with the with the red turban on, I asked it to make a realistic, you know, portrait of of that. I mean, this person looks real. I could just literally like say, hey, this is my uncle and nobody would like question it because, you know, Tony's obviously Arabic and and the it, detail of the picture, like the shadows, the uh, the check, the texture of the skin, the hair, the hair follicles, like the the you know, what makes the expression, it, right? Even the expression of the face. It's like the imperfections and the wrinkles is what like makes it look so real. And it like nailed that. Uh, so, I mean, it's really amazing. One thing I noticed is if we look at like this picture of this man with the white turban, if you will zoom into his eyes, his eyeballs look creepy. Yeah. They look creepy as hell. I'm like, so like the AI worked really nice. It didn't get like faces just perfect. Uh, it, it really messed up when it came to the eyes. This is another picture now. Um, I asked it to create the solar system with like a synth wave background. And I thought this was a really cool one. So we can see the sun here is in the, in the center, it's yellow. This is another one, it's kind of like gray. Uh, I thought this was cool. Then I, I asked it to like draw a map of the earth with the synth wave background. I thought that was pretty cool. So yeah, OpenAI doll E2. I thought that was pretty sweet. And there's one more thing that uh, Facebook just came out. I don't know if you saw, Facebook created some AI that can create a video maker. So the video maker AI, I'm gonna play it right here uh, on the screen. Let me know what you think about it. So basically, the it, you, you put in, it's the same thing as DAL-E2 or DAL-E by OpenAI. However, it will make a, it'll make a, uh, It'll make like a video or whatever. And I'm gonna actually, I'm gonna open it here. Let's see. I think I saw an example of it was, um, it, it was related to tennis, cause I, you know, follow tennis. And I saw a video where it was, uh, someone typed in like, show me uh, like a tennis player playing on the surface of the moon. <laughs> And he kept changing like from the moon to the middle of the ocean and it would always be like just the video of like the tennis player and the background behind him is changing to 
to either like you know the different planets the different like you know one one of them was like the desert versus like you know the middle of new york and you know the work that it was able to do it was super realistic i mean you can yeah. you can see that a lot of these tools can be used in movie production where instead of all the green screen and having to fly out to these cities and hire people hire people and shoot you know the producer can type into his laptop the scene that he wants to showcase on his movie and the ai can produce it in a couple minutes yeah another another person you got to just you can not have work you yeah. just have the ai it's going to take another job i mean that's amazing so jamal i don't know if you saw this so i'm playing this right here so basically this this is a video and the the first the first thing is okay a teddy bear painting a self portrait crazy it doesn't look so perfect a spaceship landing on mars a baby sloth with a knitted hat trying to figure out a laptop a robot surfing on a wave in the ocean i mean like when i saw that i'm like i thought pictures were cool now videos i mean that's on another level and it's only going to get better by like the next couple iterations so uh, i think ai is going through an exponential you know like rise in terms of what it can achieve and now we're reaching that you know final 10% where it's going to be harder to fully get to that final 100% accuracy but it's almost there right like now we can feel that ai and machine learning is like within our grasp to be able to achieve what we want to achieve because back you know maybe if we look at like ai 20 years ago i mean or in 1950 or yeah i mean none of it was achievable it was all like con i mean conceptual but at the end of the day like without having you need the computing power you need the hardware yeah so, and nowadays everything out there like that would you know computing power graphic uh, graphics card um uh uh cloud storage for big data cuz all these training models they're huge you know they're huge um and without cloud computing and without cloud storage none of this can be achieved yeah 100% i'm with you man yeah it's like it's funny cuz you see people in the past and they're like way ahead of their time and you think today like okay who are some people that are just way ahead of their time yeah you know you don't know you you know if you're listening to this you know keep whatever it is you're working on just keep working on it because you really have no idea if you might be the scientist the engineer the innovator that just comes across something so revolutionary and then whatever you discovered or you started whatever match you lit like Alan Turing and John McCarthy like you don't know that your work could just be snowball it's yeah. just like snowball effect snowball and literally change the outcome of humanity it's just it's amazing to me I, i love it i love science i love engineering it's really amazing i really respect all those people who just work day in and day out you know crunching models doing engineering doing data science you know and you know some of the advice we can give to you know certain people who are trying to figure out where they want to be or what you know degrees they want to go into based on you know some of the things we see in today's world and you know maybe our experiences um somewhat mid career like professionals we see that a lot of jobs are going to be in ai and machine learning so anything that deals with computer science mathematics 
data science, mechatronics, yeah. electrical engineering, um, mechanical engineering, all these uh, degrees and you know concentrations, they're going to be heavily in demand for at least the next 20 to 50 years. Um, we need more STEM people. For we sure. Need, we need more STEM, STEM people. 100%. And, um, but then you also want to see like what gives you the most flexibility, right? Compared, yeah. like if you compare engineering to computer science, like some of the flexibility that I can do as a data scientist is I can do my job from home. Yeah. I only need a computer and access to the internet where maybe engineers need to be, you know, on site at the office or at the plant. So maybe if someone who values, you know, being able to work from home, then computer science or data science or anything that deals with software is going to be the career path that's ideal. People like you who like to work, you know, on tools and be there in person, maybe mechatronics or engineering is more like something that they can do. Um, But overall, like these degrees are going to be in demand and going to be used for the next 50, 100 years, I I would assume. It's going to be very hard for AI to replace these jobs. Yeah, because there, there's just, there's like, I feel like there's a lot of, you know, there's just this human judgment through experience. Like we said earlier, the AI isn't going to know if the answer it created is necessarily right or wrong, you know, maybe from a technical perspective and also maybe like, also like a moral perspective. And the human has value. You know, I, I put, you know, the I, I value the human more than the you know, the technology, because the technology comes from the human. It's all, all technology is nothing more than a tool. And, you know, we use tools to accomplish our purpose and our goals. And that's what they should be. I hope nobody uses these tools for, you know, the bad. And I hope that you know, there's, you know, there's always going to be bad actors. It's been like that since the times of ancient Babylon and before. It, it's a tool. You can use a hammer to s- build a house or you can, you know, smash somebody's face in. It's like, <laughs> yeah. you know, what? use it for good. Use it for good if you're listening. <laughs> All right, Jamal. So we're going to wrap this up. So let's talk. We're going to talk about short-term predictions long-term predictions and then super long-term predictions so what are your short-term predictions on the good bad ugly everything five to ten years and let's see what are your long-term predictions 20 to 100 years and then super long-term 500 plus years the future of humanity with ai sure so uh let's go through the short term first um five to ten years Right now, like just looking at the current state of the uh, economy, um, it's not doing too good, right? We see that a lot of these high-tech growth uh, companies that usually are associated to AI and machine learning, they're not going to be doing so good for at least the next, I think, two years. Um, They're going to have to really focus their scope. They're going to have to cut down on a lot of costs, which can affect the pace of innovation in AI and machine learning. And when we look at all the companies that usually pay for these services, they're going to be doing the same thing with cutting costs. And overall, like I think we're going to see a lot of AI companies die out 
and the companies that survive this, those are going to be the ones that truly have a competitive edge and are really offering a unique product and service to the market. So mm -hmm. I think for at least the next five to 10 years for AI and for people who are involved in this space is to really take a look and monitor which companies survive the next two, three years, because it's going to be a tough environment. Because um, if we compare today's environment to kind of the tech boom and bust cycle in 2000, yeah. we had a lot of companies that were valued at such high valuations. They came back down. The, the dot-com bubble burst, yeah. yeah. And they all died out, right? A lot of companies that were in the 2000s, we don't even see them or know anything about them, and they just disappeared um, in relatively short amount of time. And also in that mix were companies like Amazon. So Amazon did go up you know, over 500%, it dropped 95%, but then in 10, 15 years, look where Amazon is right now. There's nothing Making that people don't, yeah, so. Launching satellite, sorry, uh, rockets and delivering packages and drones. And yeah, it's it's a really AWS. AWS, everything. So people who kept track of those companies that survived the tech cycle made a lot of money and I think something is going to happen um, over the next two years that's something that's similar to this. So for the next five to 10 years, let's see, let's monitor which companies survive. I think Palantir is one of those companies that survives. That was like Palantir, wasn't that some billionaire dude? Alex Karp? Yeah, and he, he it's, a, it's a security, cybersecurity. It's, not, it's more... Uh, data intelligence, but it's they use their main clients are governments, uh, and okay. um, you know, like the CIA, the FBI, the military. They say they sign um, data and AI contracts with uh, the military, and that's why their you know business model is more stable than other tech companies. Um, so I think Palantir is one to keep an eye on. Unity software another one would be also snowflake unity is that a gaming engine i uh, know yeah it's they build they have unreal engine which unreal. is real yeah which is the uh it's the software that builds games in a sense so it's like the python of the gaming industry and uh I think for the next five to ten years we're gonna witness like the ex like kind of like an extent like uh like a big shift in AI and machine learning, and we'll see. I think there's going to be a lot of exciting things. And also Tesla, right? Tesla's on the forefront of machine learning, AI, autonomous vehicles, e electric vehicles, robotics. And then when we look at kind of the long-term vision, right, Tony, when you say what's the long-term vision of AI? Um, yeah, long-term, 20 to 100 years. So I think... By 20 to 100 years, life as we know it is going to be changed, like, dramatically. I think, Tony, when we're in our 50s, the world that we're going to live in is completely different than the world we're used to. Yeah, Everything is going to be automated. I think um, a lot of jobs are going to disappear from the marketplace. Uh, a lot of manual intensive labor positions are going to be done by robots or by AI. And there's going to be a big shift in, I think, what the definition of work is going to be. 
I think just, you know, uh, labor and the way people get paid and the whole social economic standard of life is going to change. Because by then, right, all these people that are going to be laid off, what are they going to do? How are they going to make money? I So I, I've heard like Elon has mentioned, Elon Musk has mentioned that at some point we're going to need universal basic, basic income because... There might be a lot of people that don't have jobs. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, possible within at least the next 50 years. And by then, um, a lot of things. And once you take out, especially like this was something that Elon Musk mentioned um, last night, was when you introduce robots and like the Tesla bot into uh, the economy, you're pretty much, uh, your GDP is unanchored. Because GDP is linked to how much human output is, is capable. Work output. Yeah. And mm. when you replace human output with robots that you can build a million of that work 24-7, uh, the constraints of GDP become somewhat unanchored and you can grow your economy to as large as you want it to be, right? If you want to wow. make 20 million cars a year, in today's standards, there's no way you can achieve that. But maybe in 50 years when you have, let's say, a million bots in a factory, you can produce 20 million cars, 50 million cars. So the limits of expansion are, you know, endless. Um, it's going to be... Just, a, that, that literally just like... Yeah. Blew my mind. So I think there's going to be a lot of, I think, maybe a civil unrest at first. Because it's a big change, right? When you see all these people losing you know, their uh, main source of income and they need to kind of readapt themselves. It's kind of like an extinction extinction event. And the thing that's going to get extinct are these uh, manual labor uh, jobs. Um, and then when we look at like super long term, right? Let's say we're talking about 500 years from now, what AI is going to do. I think in 500 years, AI is going to, it's going to run everything we know about the world like i think it's going to be the government ai is going to be able to take into account all the data inputs and come up with the model of the best life capable for humans because if we look at politicians and all the um all the things that we know about today is it's all done based on somewhat human emotion and sometimes you know the decisions being done by politicians and even people at you know ceos of there's a lot of bureaucracy and and political layers and yeah there's it's, it's a big ship and it it's slow and sometimes there's a lot of bias in you know the decisions that's being made so maybe in 500 years like when we decide on you know who's going to be able to best manage the human population without any bias and with the best outcome it's going to be ai and if we look at like, you know, Elon Musk and what he's trying to do with, you know, humans being a, uh, a space, you know, traversing through space and going to different planets. A lot of it is going to be down to AI and robotics to manage, uh, you know, con uh, uh, planets like Mars. I mean, yeah. robots in space, they're not affected with gravity as much as us. They're not really. We already have like the Mars rover. Yeah. It, that's that's autonomous. It you know, op avoids obstacles and whatever and operates, does its thing. Yeah. 
And to be able to grow our, you know, our civilization on those planets, the least amount of risk at first that we can do it, do it through is using bots. Because you know, even if you have, you know, a population of 10,000 bots on Mars and they all die or some, you know, thing happens where they're all wiped away, it's fine. You can always build another 10,000 bots and send them back to space. It's just money. Yeah. It's just resources, but with humans, it's somewhat more sensitive. And I think AI is going to be a big factor in which civilization ends up moving to different planets and how we can leverage AI and robots to help us relieve most of the stresses that we know about life. I think we'll be able to enjoy life much more in those years, um, but I think we might feel that life might get a bit boring and we need to figure out ways where we can keep humans entertained. And I think that's going to be the big, you know, the the next big thing. How can we keep, you know, humans on Mars entertained, you that's know, important. for a hundred years when they don't need to work. They don't need to figure out how to make food. Everything's delivered to them. And if we don't find an answer to that solution, I think humans will be lazy. And I think that will be the end of humanity at that point. Because if you look at all the struggles that, humans have gone through through history that's how we were able to get to this stage of uh, evolution and civilization right we have to go us humans back to you know the initial things we spoke about in this podcast humans have been great because we've been able to adapt to change and we adapt to change when we have struggles affecting us but when we reach a lifestyle that has no struggle and is very yeah. boring i think that's going to affect us very negative negatively at that point that's real I think uh, Jordan Peterson, I really like him. I follow a lot of his content. He said, he said the statement and quote, someone on the podcast has to do a fact check. He said something like at some point, you know, if, you know, everything is done for us, it's going to come to a point where we literally, we just crave necessity. And I'll give you, so that was, you, you did a wonderful job and a very you really did a wonderful job articulating the short term long term super long term predictions very very nice my quick cliff notes version of what i think it is going to be is in line exactly what you said there's a movie it's called wally -E, and it's a disney movie so it's you know it's it's pixar or whatever a lot of symbolism in it and if you watch this movie it's just like holy shit like wally is this robot and he like he he's like a recycle bot like he takes stuff puts it inside of him and like he just like recycles outputs stuff like you know junk and garbage so earth is no longer inhabited it's just a whole bunch of garbage humans live off planet on some other planet i forgot what it is and then when wally gets transported over to like the planet where humans are uh, some other robot comes and finds like a plant and and then brings it back and then he somehow comes back and he sees and he sees all the modern day humans all the modern day humans what do they look like they're fat they have a screen in front of them and they don't do anything for themselves and they're they're like they're just they're overweight because they don't move and they just have a screen in front of them and and i saw that and i was just like damn like 
it's going to be so automated where like you don't even need to like get up and like is that going to be healthy for you physically mentally so i think the wally analogy like you said it's going to be real and people are going to have to have more and more entertainment to keep their brains preoccupied and yeah it's going to be very interesting how it pans out we'll be long dead before that point but it's interesting to see maybe this podcast in 500 years if the things we're talking about now end up happening or not yeah it'll forever yeah hopefully if anyone's watching this in like 500 years and you see myself and jamal just sitting in our living room talking about ai and the future predictions 500 plus years from now um do some do 10 push-ups at least if you're watching this yeah yeah do 10 push-ups at least i would say i would i would go for at least maybe like 30 uh do some pull-ups jumping jacks yeah jamal it was great to have you on the show man thanks like this was a lit podcast we kind of went we went over time however the 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 topic i mean we covered so much we could probably talk for hours uh but that's it jamal is there anything else you wanted to get off your chest get out there for the audience uh i mean to leave the audience off i think the life as we know it is going to change i think drastically with all the things that we're witnessing in today's world i think the next 10 years are going to be difficult and they're going to be very interesting times so for everyone just you know keep working on your craft make sure you develop your skills because at the end of the day you know, the data you possess as a human being, that's the most valuable thing you can output to the world. And the more you work on your craft and the more you connect to the world and see what's going on in the industry in terms of AI and machine learning, I think that's going to set you apart from anyone else. And I think um, doing so is going to help you set up a, a life and a career that maybe you're ideally targeting and it helps you enjoy life to the full extent. That's awesome. That was beautiful, Jamal. Thanks for that. Thanks for being on. All right, everyone. Peace. To the the skies out.